0: All right, let's pray, shall we? Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you that once again they are here and they are ready by your grace to listen to your word. They're ready by your grace to fellowship with one another, sharing with one another what you are teaching them in their walk with you. Praise you so much for your goodness and your grace today. Lord, we all need your help this morning. What we are about to undertake is something that we cannot do well by ourselves. Lord, we need your grace to help us. We need your spirit within us, not only to speak, but also to listen and to think, to process what is around us. Lord, I pray that you would help this time to be a time that benefits each one of us and that brings glory to you. Lord, I I pray that you would be at work in us for your purposes, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you have your notebook, would you turn it over and look at the back side of it briefly? And I'll get mine. We're going to run through the build disciplines briefly, and then we're going to talk about forgiveness a little bit. Uh, We want to keep in front of us these disciplines every time. Um, We're not presuming that anybody doesn't know this. We're not presuming that everybody has forgotten. It is just good for us. To remember that we need to be people who first and foremost care for our own hearts. When we care for our hearts through the reading of the Word, the meditating on the Word, the conversing with God through prayer, listening to Him, confessing to Him, praising Him, thanking Him, seeking His help in things, that is when we are ready for every other aspect of our life. It starts in whatever our household context is, whether we live with other guys or we're married. We have children, we're married, we don't have children, we have married, we're getting ready for children. Um, We must be guys who bring our own heart shepherding into our Mm -hmm. home. And when we live out our home life, we are ready to enter into this church and ready to enter into fellowship with other guys Mm -hmm. in whatever ministry the Lord gives to us. And when we are doing that, we want to be men who are continually aiming at becoming a well-qualified man for a, a deacon service role at this church. Not that we're aiming at becoming deacons, we're just aiming at being qualified, being the kind of men who are ready to serve in a deacon role at this church. And fifthly, we want to be men who, after we've done all of those things, are always men who want to grow and grow and grow in our ability to handle the word. And we want to be the guys who are doing that. We're making provision in our life for how to do that. We have time in our life to study the word. We have time in our life to look carefully at God's word. We want to grow specifically in that. So we want to keep those things in front of us as men. Again, it's shepherding your heart is is what flows into everything else. Everything else flows out of your own heart shepherding. If you want a successful home, if you want a successful ministry, if you want to be growing in your qualifications as a man who's ready to serve, if you want to be growing in your ability to handle the word, all of those things in a biblical way, it requires that we be guys who are first and foremost taking care of our own heart with God's word and with prayer. So we want to keep that in front of us. So you're spending time in the word. You're praying. You're coming before God and you're you're thanking him for who he is. Your worship is growing. You're praying for your family. You're praying for your household. You're praying for those who live with you. You're praying for your church. You're confessing sin. You're studying the word. You're doing really, really well. And uh, you bring the fruit of that into your household and And you find yourself in a situation where somebody in your household sins against you badly. And there's one of three responses that that person who sins against you can make. They they might realize it and they come to you and they confess it before you and they seek forgiveness from you. Or maybe they realize their sin against you and they really don't care that they sinned against you. And it's really not that important to them to do anything about it. Or maybe they don't even realize it. And uh, they're not even aware of what they've done. They've been doing this for years. They've been doing this for months. They've been doing this for weeks. And they're not even aware that they're they're building up or laying up a sin offense against you. Um, so the issue of forgiveness is before you, whether they come to you or whether they don't come to you. We are people who are commanded to forgive. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians 3, we're going to look at two verses there. We're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13. As you're turning there, it's really good for us to understand exactly what forgiveness is. And forgiveness is this. It's the blotting out of a record of an offense. It's not the blotting out of the offense itself. It's a blotting out of the record of the offense really good way to get a grasp on what blotting out means is to think about what God said in Genesis chapter 6 when he looks down and he sees the sin of mankind pervading the earth and man is man is sinful It's is after the fall and he sees mankind in all of his sinfulness and he is grieved over what he has made he said I will blot out man from the face of the earth so the flood comes Noah and his family are on the ark eight people everybody else is completely removed. When the floodwaters recede from the earth, there is no record of the rest of mankind on the earth. You don't see any sense in Scripture in which there is any record at all of anybody. So blotting out is the <clears throat> complete removal of something. And when you're forgiving, you're removing the uh, the record of an offense that a person has against you. So we'll look at that in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. But before we look at the verses, we want to make sure we understand the context here. Paul is talking, starting in verse 1, to people who are clearly believers. Look at verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ, drop down to verse 9. Since you laid aside the old self, in verse 12, uh, verse 10, you've put on the new self who is being renewed. The main thing here is Paul is writing to people who are new creations. He's writing to people who possess the ability to walk in the newness of life. So it's those people that he addresses in verses 12 and 13. And he says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, here's the instruction put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also. First thing we need to understand about this passage is is that this is an instruction passage. You can see the instruction at the beginning of verse 12. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's the instruction. That is the kind of person that a person who is born again is to be. There to be a person who is compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. And by the way, you get to be that kind of person as you shepherd your own heart. That's the kind of man you become when you shepherd your heart consistently. What we see after that is a description, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. So what we see here is two things from this passage. Uh, The first thing is that the person who is a believer is one who demonstrates compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And the way that he demonstrates that is what follows. It's bearing with one another and forgiving one another. That is an essential component to being that kind of person. This is how the Christian demonstrates what kind of person he is. If he wants to live patiently with a person, if he wants to live kindly with a person, if he wants to be compassionate towards those in his household, forgiveness is an essential part of all of that because he's removing an offense that someone brings against him. If the one comes to him and says, I sinned against you, I need to seek your forgiveness. Would you please forgive me? He is ready to grant it. And the reason why he is ready to grant it is because what you see at the end of verse 13, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also. He remembers the infinite offense that his sin is against the Holy God. And he remembers what God has done to restore fellowship with him, to win him and to save him. He remembers what God has done to restore favor and to give him favor. And so because that is what God did for him, he is quick and he is ready to do that with those who have sinned against him. But he also is ready to do that if the person never comes to him. If they they don't come to him because they don't realize it or they don't come to him because they realize it but they really don't care, he is still ready to forgive them. He is still ready to forgive them in his heart. And he does go to them eventually to reconcile the relationship and and deal with the issue that, that has come between them. But he is one who is always ready to forgive because he does not want to carry forward with himself anything that will prevent him from living out discipline too, from living out in peace with, with those within him. It is very, very difficult to live a truthfully productive, fruitful family life, truly productive, fruitful home life if there is a burden of offense that stands between you and another in your home. So I want to just encourage you this morning to be one who is ready to forgive even if the one who sins against you does not come to you. So we want to keep that in front of us. All right. So those are our build disciplines for this morning. Jacob is going to be starting to speak at 745. So we want to be back here and ready to go at 745. Let's head to our discussion groups and be back here 745.
1: All right, guys, thank you for for coming back. Um, we are going to be spending the next hour or so in 1st, uh, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings. How many of you guys have gotten there yet in your Read Through the Bible in a Year plan? If, if you're not, I think you should be coming right up about on that, or if not, this, you're, you're about to go into this. Whether you're in Chronological or the or any of those, you should be right in the ballpark, right? Pretty pretty close. <laughs> Should be <laughs> so. And I've had the the privilege of my small group of sitting in these these books for the last few months, and uh, want to share some of of what I've been learning, what we've been learning, especially as it relates to guarding your heart from sin. Um, if you guys remember what when I talked about last time I taught, you remember Proverbs four twenty three. Guard your heart. With all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. What we, what we learned from that, right, is that the heart is the wellspring. It's the source from which all of your life flows. Right? Everything that you do comes from that source of your heart. So your heart, the way that you live, reflects your heart. Right, So when you're in a situation, we, we talked about it in our small group, this year, what types of situations do you find yourself in where you're more prone to sin? Those situations aren't the cause of your sin. Right, You know that. The cause is the heart or the source from which that sin flows is your heart. So any attempt to deal with that situation any attempt to deal with your sin has to happen at a heart level. Simple. And yet at the same time, um, I want to show us through the lives of of the first three kings of Israel how that plays out. Maybe what shepherding your heart looks like and what not shepherding your heart and the subtleties of that looks like. I also want us to remember that as Christians, right? anything good that you have, we talked about that. Remember, God gave us a heart transplant. That's what salvation is. For the first time, we're able to be obedient from the heart. Right? Prior to to Christ, we were in the Genesis 6-5 situation. When Yahweh saw that every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. And because that's man's natural state, apart from a new heart, we find that no one does good. No, not one. Right? Because the heart... Reflects the way that you live. So anything good in you as you look at your life right now, as you look at your heart shepherding efforts, as you looked at at sanctification that's happened since since you became new in Christ, maybe since you started in build, when you look at that, you might be tempted, apart from a Proverbs 4.23 understanding, to start patting yourself on the back, thinking, oh good, this came from my efforts. But know that Apart from Christ renewing your heart, God renewing your heart, nothing good will come from it. So whenever you see anything good in your life, let us sit under that umbrella of the gospel that says you were given a new heart at salvation. And give God the glory for it. So that's, a, remember, everything, or the way that you live reflects your heart. But just as true, the way that you live affects your heart. Right? So that's why we say you have to guard your heart With all diligence. And so we're going to see in the lives of these kings three men who started really well. Three men who started on a trajectory that looked like it could have ended in success. Three men who started with, the Bible says, the Spirit of Yahweh on them, who started out living for the glory of God, and either through heart compromising choices ended up in a bad spot. Or through heart shepherding, heart guarding practices, ended up in a good spot. So um, this understanding that, that we need to shepherd or guard our hearts, um, we're going to watch this played out in the lives of the kings. And therefore, we, we said that we want to guard our lives, guard our hearts from sin, right? And that, that's probably first and foremost on your mind. When you hear Right, discipline one is what? Shepherd your heart. Shepherd your heart or guard your heart. You're going to be aware that I need to guard it from sin. When I see the sin that comes out of my heart, I know that came from my heart. Where, where did it come in? I need to fight that. Right, and it's right to shepherd your heart from sin, to not be content to let sin linger in your life. Right, That when there's confession of sin, there's immediate repentance. Scott Demers talked about that a few weeks ago. We're going to go back over that today. But that guarding your heart, it isn't primarily what you keep out of it. Although it certainly involves that. Remember, it's the it's Psalm one nineteen nine. It's how does a young man keep his way pure, David asked. Do you remember the answer? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, what, is it, what did he say? With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments, David said. So, at the this is just a review from the last lesson. At a fundamental level, guarding or keeping your heart is a guarding it from sin, but to God. What does that look like? What doesn't that look like? We're going to get a, a glimpse of it today. Um, so... So Israel's kings. Turn turn over your, your page your notes to the, the back of page one. The context of Samuel and the kings was probably written to the exiles. So right, Israel comes out of they go into slavery in Egypt. With Moses, Joshua, they come out of Egypt. God saves them with miraculous signs, wonders. Crossing the Red Sea, getting them out, going into the promised land. After a generation, Jericho, the walls fall down. You have a, a nation that God brought into the promised land after years of promise. He brought them in right as a, a pe- his people to replace the godless nations. And sadly, Israel became more like the godless nations than than what God had them, what God had designed them to be. Over time, right, you you fall into the time of the judges, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And you're like, what's up with this? God brought us. We're his people. He brought brought us into the into the land. And man. If you just read Judges, the people look more and more and more like the godless people that they were supposed to replace. All the way to the the book ends with this crazy story of the the rape of a, a concubine and her body cut up and passed throughout all the nations as a test, or throughout the whole the whole land as a testimony to just how wicked God's people had become. There's this cycle of judges where. The people become increasingly wicked. God judges, them. God uh, punishes them through the means of the nations that they were supposed to be a judgment on. And then he raises up a judge. The people short term repent and it happens over and over and over again. And then finally, right, this is a na- the nation. It's not even a nation. It's, it's a people, but they're scattered. Finally, then Saul is raised up, a king, and we're going to read about this. He's raised up, and the, the kingdom's united. And then you have David, and God promises him, you're, going to, there's a, you're lying, there's going to be a king over Israel forever. Right, this awesome promise is made. There's riches. Solomon, the nations are bringing tribute to him, and you're like, these are God's people finally. There's this awesome temple. The presence of God is there. And then generations later, there's nobody in the land. They're exiled. God's people are sitting here in Babylon and Assyria. They're scattered. And they might be asking, how did we get here? We're supposed to be God's people. And really first second Samuel first second Kings was written, especially First, second Kings written to these people, a history of Israel and Judah for the people in exile preparing them to return to the land Um, the first readers of the finished form of 1st and 2nd Samuel one commentary says were the Jews living in the 6th or 5th centuries BC and they were concerned about putting their nation back together following the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon they also might want to, to understand who they were. Um, their, their historical roots, theological and political issues that affected their lives. Right? They, they, might, um, they would want to know, how did we get here and how do we avoid this? God has all kinds of promises that he made for Israel. Like, I'm going to promise that you're going to be in this land. This is, he get, made some forever promises to the people. There's going to be a king from the line of David, on the throne forever, if you follow my precepts. right All the way back in Deuteronomy, before they entered the land, God gives them all kinds of promises. If you do this, you will be blessed. But if you disobey, I I used to take joy in blessing you, I'm going to actually take joy in bringing these curses on you. Um, so, so they're sitting here. How, how do we regroup? How did we get here, and what? What? How do we repent? So the, these people, the, the audience of First of Samuel and, and Kings, they were the people of Deuteronomy twenty-eight, fifteen through sixty-eight. Turn there really fast. Deuteronomy twenty-eight. So this is before the people enter the land. They set them up between two mountains. Moses is here in the land, the people are there and they say, there's going to be curses or blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And these people who these books were written to, who really the story and and the reason, if you might wonder, you could have, the authors of 1st, 2nd Samuel and 1st, 2nd Kings could have chosen any number of stories, right? There's hundreds of years here, but there were particular stories chosen for particular purpose. And they were chosen to talk to the people undergoing these curses to help bring them to repentance. God has just told them about all the, if you faithfully obey, verse 1 of 28, faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, being careful to do all of his commandments, I'll set you high above all the nations of the earth. And these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. He goes on to enumerate the blessings. But then he says in verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. He goes all the way on to, to talk about basically the exile. And he says <coughs> in verse 63, as Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you when you're obedient. So Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you'll be plucked off the land that you're entering to take possession of it. And that's exactly where this audience finds himself. He, after they've taken the land, right? So you have a people who obey, they've taken the land. And then Joshua 23, he restates this promise of curse, right? So, so you have these people, who God's word had been established, and you had a whole people for generations who ignored this. They were more concerned about what they wanted and doing what was right in their own eyes than following God's word. They had clearly before them here's the promises for obedience, here's the curses for disobedience. And for hundreds of years, God's people basically fall in the path of disobedience. And God did exactly what he said he would do and put them out of the land. And these people then were faced with with Deuteronomy 30, which is talking to these men. Go Go to Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. He goes, when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you, and you return to Yahweh your God, You and your children, and you obey his voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Yahweh will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he'll gather you again from all the people where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcast are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. Verse 6. And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and all your soul and you will live. So these people were faced with a decision. The same decision that every generation before had been faced with. But they were faced with a decision. Are we going to obey Yahweh our God? Or are we going to walk in the paths of our, of our fathers, the, the, really the generations before? They were scattered, they were experiencing, for really the first time since Egypt, life outside of the land. And God used that trial to sanctify and bring back a remnant of people devoted to him. That wasn't perfect. And they had a lot to wait for. But as they waited for the king that God, was, that God promised, they had to wait 400 years. And then they brought, and then Jesus came on the scene. You know what? There's a lot of promises we still wait for. But ultimately, just like, um, just like the, uh, the authors of these two books, Samuel and Kings, they had this, these people in mind, basically a call to repentance saying, there's an example and instruction in these kings for what to do and what not to do. There's a reason why we are how we are right now. And there's a way to get back. You know, we, we have this, this was written for us too. I want you to go to 1 first, first Corinthians 10. So there was an, an immediate audience, which was the people in the land. But you know what? God had us in mind as Saul disobeyed and had the kingdom ripped from him as David obeyed and disobeyed, as Solomon had his heart um, turned away, really as Israel in the wilderness wandered, God was sovereignly orchestrating that with us in mind. I want you to think of that. Think of this passage as you read through the Bible in a year. So there was an immediate audience. It was the audience audience. In, in the dispersion the, the Jews wanting to return wondering how, how did we get here but then there's us 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 this is speaking specifically of the exodus and the people's disobedience but I think that Romans fifteen four makes it clear that this applies to all of Old Testament narrative 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things took place as examples for us. Think about that. God had these things in mind. He doesn't say, oh, these things are just examples. He says more than that. He goes, these things took place as examples for us. He doesn't say, oh, I need to find an example so that you don't desire evil. He actually says, God superintended the experiences of the exodus. The tragedy of, I mean, you read this, you're like, Israel, how could you be so stupid? It's for me. How could, how could you indulge in sexual immorality? Verse eight, and 23,000 of them fell in a single day. Why would 23,000 people die? Why would you guys not repent? You had a pillar of fire in front of you. You had smoke by 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 day, fire by night. You had You saw Moses' face. You saw the mountain shake. You saw the Red Sea. And you're still complaining about bread? You still don't trust God? Why? It was for me. Verse six, right? These things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also um, provide a way of escape. So in this, in these lessons that we read, that you're reading every day in God's word, and you see an example, you say these things happened as examples and they were written down for our instruction so that we might not desire evil as they did. And you can say, so as as you are in God's word every single day, you must be in God's word every single day. And as you are in God's word every single day, and you read these examples, especially in the Old Testament narrative, be humbled by it. Take heed lest you fall. And you can say, the trials that I will the temptations that I'm going to receive today, they're not uncommon. They've happened in ages past. And it happened with me in mind. So I might not desire evil as they did. Okay, so let's with, with that in mind. Go to Deuteronomy 17. This is Israel's ideal king. Sorry I went out of order. This is at the top of your second page. So what did God's word look like for the kings? What would, when we say that we need to shepherd our hearts to God's word to get the God of the word, right? We need to look to, when you you read Psalm 119, you read what David talked about about wanting to know God's precepts, about longing for them more than gold. But he, didn't, he only had what was written before. But what were some of the things that, he, that these men were supposed to shepherd their hearts to God's word to get? Well, particularly for the kings, there was a passage of Deuteronomy that was written to tell them who they were supposed to be and why. Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you and you possess it and you dwell in it and you say I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me you may indeed set a king over you God said to the people in Exodus whom Yahweh your God will choose right so number one I get to choose him one from among your brothers you shall set a king over you don't put a foreigner only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt. Verse 17 He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Verse 18 And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up among above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in the kingdom. He and his children in Israel. So God had particular command for the leaders of Israel. There's a lot in this passage. You could do a whole sermon on this little, this little passage here. But at the heart of it, at the heart of it is that little part that says, it's, it's the heart of, of putting, he, he must know God's word, Why? Right, verse 18, he, he must know God's word intimately. So intimately that he, he writes it out. Have you ever written out God's word? Do you ever turn your brain off when you're reading? Just be like, I need to get through this. Let me encourage you. This is not the purpose of this passage, but it is something to gather. There's something to be said about having a keyboard in your lap or a pen in your hand. About connecting your mind to the word. And they weren't just supposed to take notes on God's word. They were supposed to write out themselves every single word of it for a purpose. What's the purpose? So that it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life. Right. This is for a man who's going to be in a very busy season of life. If you think about this, this is, this is the king of, of, of the nation who's fighting wars, judging I mean, you look at all the, the stuff that these guys had to do. There's a lot of stuff. He was in a busy season of his life. He couldn't wait till until he got through this season, So I'm going to write it out next season. He was actually supposed to do this at the outset, read it every day. For what purpose? Look down. What's the that? Anytime you see a that or a therefore or because or so that, underline it, circle it, draw an arrow. I, I put arrows. the king was supposed to get his heart in front of God's word so intimately all the time so that he may learn to fear Yahweh by keeping the words of the law and doing them. All right, so he dealt with his heart. He got God's word into his heart at a fear, fear of God level. That produced obedience and the obedience... He, he was going to learn to fear the Lord by reading, read so that you fear the Lord and you fear the Lord by keeping the words of the law, right? So what you do affects your heart. Your, what you do comes out of your heart. Get God's word into your heart so that you fear the Lord and fear the Lord by obeying. There's this, this reciprocal thing going on here. And this was supposed to be the characteristic of the king. This is the characteristic of a leader, It's a man whose heart knows God's word and it knows God's word and is obedient to God's word all for the fear of the Lord. So if there's one thing you get from the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and wisdom is where obedience comes from. What's the fool? The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. There is no God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And and the fear of the Lord, that's this big nebulous thing. But let me me ask you something. When you're driving down the road, are you more aware of the traffic around you or God's eye on you? (laughs) And what you do when somebody cuts you off reveals it. When you wake up in the morning... And you're just like, oh, this is, this is a challenge to me. And I'm like, oh, man, if I could just get 15 more minutes of sleep. What I really need is 15 more minutes of sleep. Snooze. Am I more aware of God? Or is my heart saying, I actually need, need sleep more than anything. I'm saying in my heart, there, there is no God. I'm not saying this, but I'm acting like it's true. Now, fear of the Lord is much more than just knowing there's a God. But I'm saying if we live up so much of of my day, I'm tempted to act like there isn't even a God, much less fear this God. And you're going to see this is what characterized some kings. This might characterize you. So the first step that we learned, I think, from these men is they were supposed to get their heart in God's word and obey God's word to get them to a fear of God. And what you do reflects whether or not you're actually fearing God. And the first step to fearing God is you actually have to know He's there. And if you go out, if you start your day, first thing you think you need is snooze. The second thing, you, second thing you think you need is coffee. And then you hit your, and those it's not a bad thing. But then you hit your, you hit your day, you hit work, and then all of a sudden all these demands come at you. You come home and you're exhausted. What you think you need most is to sit on the couch or to be loved or to get some food. And now you hit the end of the day and what's been most real to you all day is this world. And then you do it again the next day. And you do it again the next day. And then imagine being a king. I got Philistines coming at me. I got the Ammonites I, gotta kill. I got I to got kill. I got all these gifts coming in. I, I, yeah, I got these riches I got to deal with. I got all these wives I got to deal with. I got, and now all of a sudden, God doesn't seem so real anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know He's there because He actually talked to these guys. Mm -hmm. There are prophets coming, but now all of a sudden, they're so far from fear of the Lord, they're actually like the fool saying in their heart, There is no God. Mm -hmm. Let's watch that going and keep in your mind when David says, Psalm 119, when he talks about God's word. It's passages like this that he has in mind. We have so much more. Promises of blessing, curses for disobedience. We actually have promises for the means of obeying. Right? So much more than this. We have promises of of the means that, that when you're tempted, there's going to be a way out. That God saved you. You're not a slave of sin. No, you're actually a slave of righteousness. We have so much more to go to but at the heart of it what we learn from these men is don't get distracted by the cares of this world the, the things of this world you're going to watch some of these men live like fools like there is no god so let's jump in intro to the lives of these kings what i want you to do you have we're going to go through king's start king's warnings king's compromise and then on the back of on page three, you have King's response to sin, King's outcome, and the King's differences. Draw two lines there so there's three columns. Because you're going to have Saul in the first column, David in the second column, Solomon in the third column. Does that make sense? We're going to compare and contrast these three kings and get some lessons from them. So, how did they start? Saul started well. He was right. Deuteronomy 17 said that he had to be chosen by God, not not from among the men. Saul looked good. He was one of the best looking guys in the land, taller than everybody. But ultimately, he was selected by God, anointed by the prophet, and taken by Lot. So God chose him in 1 Samuel 9 15 ish. Samuel anointed him. And then, after Samuel said, You're going to be the king. Then they get all the people together from the land because the people said, Samuel, your kids are knuckleheads. They're not like you. We're not going to we're not going to have the days of the judges are gone. We need a king like all the nations around us. In this act, the people were actually rejecting Yahweh, they said. But God said, that's okay. You're going to still put a king. Remember, Deuteronomy 17 said you can do that. So they said, Samuel, your kids are knuckleheads. They're not going to be over us. We're going to have a king. God says, Samuel, go anoint Saul. So he does. Um, that's the story of the finding the donkey. You gotta realize God chose him, and then after this fact, they get all the people around, and by lot they said we're going to choose our king, and they go down. Which tribe, Benjamin? All right, which clan? All the way down to, all the way down to Saul, and they say, they take lot, Saul by, by lot, and they're like, where is he? I can't find him. You remember that story? We can't find. Him. And Godway says, he's hiding over in the bags. <laughs> so he's, he's so scared. So he's not puffed up. He's scared. He's hiding in the bags. And he's chosen by God. He, he's, so some people say, why should we follow Saul? Right? So most of the people say, praise God. Long live the king. Here's Saul. Some of them are saying, why should we follow Saul? The first act of Saul as king there's these ammonites and they they get they, they go to a, a village and they they basically say we're going to kill you all unless you let us gouge out your right eye or something like that. we're going to all gouge out an eye and they say wait give us a few days if, if we need. and so they go to all of israel and they say can you guys help us right israel's just scattered it's a bunch of bunch of disparate cities right they've, they've never been united They're just tribes scattered throughout. Since the days of Joshua, they haven't really been one, right? There were judges that would come up in one part, one part, another. The first thing Saul does is he goes throughout all the land and gathers all the people together and says, let's get these guys. We have to protect our brothers. And they do. And so that's in, uh, in chapter 20, uh, first Samuel 11. So the first thing that Saul does is defeats the Ammonites and then they say, Saul's great. Look, he united the whole kingdom. Let's kill all the people who said, Saul was, who said, why should we have Saul over us? And did Saul do that? Did he say, yeah, let's establish my reign, kill all of my enemies. No, he said, 1 Samuel eleven thirteen, not a man shall be put to death this day. For Yahweh has worked salvation in Israel. Then Israel was united under Saul at Gilgal. Right? Saul started seeing Yahweh in this. He started, there was a a battle. And what did he see most? He didn't say, and people were saying, long live Saul, good job Saul. And Saul had the wisdom, the fear of the Lord to say, this was from God. Don't kill anybody today. This was from God. My being on the throne is from God. This was from God. So Saul's first act recorded after being king put him on a great trajectory. But one of the lessons you need to learn in the fight of sin is that yesterday's obedience doesn't guarantee today's. You need to obey yesterday. Yesterday's obedience, though, doesn't guarantee today's. It doesn't make today's efforts. Yesterday's disobedience doesn't make today's efforts at repentance fruitless. So he started out well, and then you, you know what God was so gracious to Saul. He went to him in First Samuel twelve fourteen through the prophet Samuel. He goes twelve fourteen. He says, "If you will fear Yahweh and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the command of Yahweh, both you and the the king who reigns over you." He says this to all the people. And if you follow Yahweh your God, it will be well. But he reiterates those promises and, and curses. He goes, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Verse 16, he goes, God says, I'm telling you this and I'm going to establish that this is actually from me. He goes, now watch watch your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I'll call upon the Lord that he send thunder and rain and you'll know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called on the Lord, and he sent thunder and rain that day. And the people feared the Lord. God gave his word, established it with signs. All the people were very aware of Yahweh that day. They feared him. That was a warning, right? That should have stuck with... That was, in some senses, people might say, man, all I have is God's word on a piece of paper. If only God would send me a prophet to speak directly to my situation. If only I could talk face-to-face with God, then I'd really know the power. Maybe if God would send a sign or a wonder to prove it to me. See, See how that went for Saul. So that was the king's warning. Now now let's go to the king's compromise. Just the next chapter. (coughs) Right They're Fighting the Philistines. There's apparently been a command. Saul, wait for Samuel. He's going to come before you go out to battle. Samuel's going to do a sacrifice. You want Yahweh on your side. Right? He he knows. Saul's not so stupid (coughs) to think I'm going to go out to battle on my own. He says, "I, I want Yahweh on my side. So he goes, but Samuel's not coming. I'm sure God's going to be fine if I do the sacrifice, right? It's, I mean, I'm still worshiping him. I'm not doing it totally the way that he said. Which gives you inklings of Nadab and Abihu. God doesn't, God doesn't like you sort of obeying his word. Sort of doing it your own way saying, I'm sure God will be fine if I just, change like this this is a justified disobedience i mean there's philistines over there and i'm the king i can't sit here and and look weak and you we can't wait i'm going to do a sacrifice and he does and as he's sacrificing samuel walks up <coughs> verse 13 of chapter 13 and samuel said to saul you have done foolishly God had just told him, if you keep the command, things are going to go well. If you don't, they're not going to go well. How quick are we sometimes to forget God's word? Hearing it isn't the same thing as doing it. Anticipate the temptation when you hear the command. Right? If, if you would have said, oh, okay, if, if Saul, Saul would have thought, God just finished telling me, If I disobey, some bad things are going to happen. I'd better really be on my guard to not disobey. Um, If he would have called that to mind here, it could have been helpful. Because you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you. For then Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. There's other compromises. His his life was sort of filled with compromise. First Samuel 15. There's the uh, Agag, the king of uh, the Amalekites. And God's... Israel was supposed to kill these guys a long time ago. They, they didn't, right? That was, God was patient with the people. He didn't wipe them out in the days of Abraham because he said the iniquity of that, of the Amorites and all these people, they're not yet complete. I'm going to get more glory if I let them become really, really sinful and then I wipe them out in judgment. So I'm going to send my people in the land and you wipe them all out. Well, they didn't do it. They didn't do it all. So now he's like, Saul, go kill them. Every single one. Man, woman, child, beast, don't keep anything. Go kill them. This is First Samuel fifteen. Devote all to destruction. What did Saul do? Saul came in. Um, he he won the battle. He defeated them. Verse seventeen. He took. So, yay, all the people are cheering. The Amalekites who've been causing all the problems, they've been killed. And he took Agag, verse 8, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and he would not utterly destroy them. It was a compromise, right? Have you ever obeyed like that? So there was a a command to do. But it's like, if I I could obey. I mean, he destroyed the Amalekites. They were gone. They had no more power. He had the king. Um, But he didn't obey all the way. And that was a compromise that maybe wasn't too far off in his mind, but he's starting to wander. He should have been guarded from this. He had already been rebuked, right, for the sin against the sacrifice. He'd been, oh God, I sinned against you. I don't want to do that again. No more halfway obedience, no way, no more partway obedience. But I want to focus on the king's response now in both of these cases. Verse 15, verse 24. This sounds okay, right? Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Right, so Samuel's like, Saul, what... I hear the bleeding. He goes, did you do it? And Saul says, yeah, I did it. He goes, well, I can hear the sheep over there. <laughs> what's, what's that all about? I can hear sheep. He goes, well, yeah, but they're really good sheep. I didn't kill them. And that would be stupid. They're good sheep. We can use them. Right? And look, I have the king. He's doesn't look good. We captured the king. He's like, we, we could sacrifice the sheep. God would like it if we sacrificed the sheep, right? good motives here. And Samuel says, "I don't want sa- God doesn't want sacrifices; He wants obedience. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, verse twenty-three, He's rejected you as being king. So now, and then, Samuel goes and chops Agag up. Samuel has to do it. So." so Saul's response what what would you do in that situation what should you do have you ever sinned and realized it right you're like you're caught you're staring at your sin you're like oh that's gross how did I right he should have been I came to my senses I I should have obeyed Yahweh he promised me all these blessings that pale in comparison to me keeping a few sheep in the Amalekites Oh, I've (laughs) sinned against you God and goes out, and he should have gotten and killed Agag. He should have been the leader and slaughtered him. But what did he do? He says, "I have sinned." This sounds like a confession, right? I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the of Yahweh and your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. I don't. I don't know if that's what actually happened. This is, <laughs> but it sounds good, right? Have you ever confessed like that? Maybe in in small group, or to your spouse, or in your own heart. You're like, think of if you struggle with pornography. You've you've looked, you've, you've done the unthinkable. And first let me ask if, in the case of pornography, would you look at it if your wife was next to you? Why? Well, because her presence is real. You have affection for her. You're scared of her. You fear your wife. Would you do that? Would you look at pornography if if I was with you? No. Probably if a stranger was with you, you wouldn't. So what does it reveal about your fear or even your, your thought of God if you Launch up the computer, look behind you, there's no one here. Click, click, click. The fool says, in his heart, there is no God. And then you come to your senses. And you're like, oh God, the kind of man who I am, you said shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's who I was, that's not who I am. Let me go confess that to my wife. Let me go confess that to my small group. I don't care what the consequences are. Confess your sins to one another so that you're healed. I don't care what the consequences are. I must be rid of this sin. Fill in the blank on the sin. You come to your senses. And you're like, I have sinned against you and you alone, God. That's what the heart who sins does when it realizes what's happened. And and Saul apparently realized, oh man, I've been stupid. I sinned against God, right? I've transgressed the commandment of Yahweh. So what should he have done? Oh, people, look at me. I'm confessing in front of you. This was wrong. Let me go set an example. Whether it was because I feared you or I wanted the stuff, I don't care. I'm going to go kill Agag myself right now and and kill all these animals. What does he do? Samuel said to him, verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom from Israel this day because Saul seized the skirt of his robe and ripped it. Saul, that's a picture of Saul like grasping after what he wanted. He's like, oh, don't take the kingdom from me. I don't want to lose my, I don't want the consequences. Go to verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned. He's con- apparently confessing again. Yet Samuel honor me now. <laughs> right? He just said you're going to have the kingdom ripped away from you, but but honor me now before the elders so that I may bow before the Lord your God. That's not actually he, he just wants honor before the people. Don't give me the consequences. John Owen commented, he says, he sought the end without the means. He would have the blessing, but he used not the means of attaining it, namely faith and repentance. This is not repentance. Your repentance can't look like, oh, I sinned and let me try to avoid some consequences. We can be prone to want to do that. You realize I sinned against my wife, Wife, I didn't love you well. And now you're mad at me. And you sort of do a half-hearted confession. Can we make up? And all that you want is restoration of relationship, which is a good thing. But watch your heart. Are you trying to avoid? First off, did your sin come from lack of fear of God? Repent of that. Realize it was against God. And then... Is your confession trying to avoid the consequences or is it actually an expression of your repentance and trying to get right in your fear of God? Samuel or Saul revealed that he wanted and there's more in, in pretty much all of what Saul's um, confessions, there's a I don't want the consequences. So there's conf- confession without repentance in Saul. And then there's even further un, there's further sin to undo the consequences instead of repentance, right? What was the consequence of Saul's sin? God rejects him. And says I'm going to put David on the throne instead of you. So what's Saul's response 1 Samuel 18:12? He's angry and tries to have David killed. God blesses David and actually Saul reaps the blessings, right? Kills Goliath, kills Philistines, Saul tries to set him up and says, "Yeah, you can marry my daughter, Michael, if you go get me the four skins of hundred Philistines." David gets two hundred. Saul's like, "Okay, they're, I'm sure he's going to die if he goes tries to do that." And David does it, but Paul, Saul's motive was to try to go get David killed. Okay, good, but Saul benefits. So there's further sin to try to undo the consequences instead of repentance. Have you ever sinned to try to undo the consequences? What does that reveal? That you're not actually caring about the sin. What's the effect on your heart? Do you see Saul? He started out on a sin like, I'm going to do a sacrifice, which is bad enough to have the kingdom ripped away from him, but it should have been a wake up call to repent. You remember King Ahab? This guy repented by the end of his the husband of Jezebel. He actually repented and God didn't bring judgment in his generation. Saul, who Ahab started out worshiping Baal and leading the nation into further idolatry, I mean the whole the whole family of Omri. But this guy, Saul, started out well. Little compromise, a little more, a little more, and then by the end of his life, he's trying his hardest to kill David, all the way to the point of he slaughters the priests of Yahweh. He goes out. I mean, he's bringing his whole army out against David throwing spears at trying to kill David well he, David's doing nothing but love towards him there's further sin, further sin, further sin the king's compromise did not bring it led to sin and it did not his response was nowhere near repentance what was the king's outcome? he was killed in battle within a few generations his, his line was totally wiped out And he's a testimony. He's an example to us. An example to the nation. An example to all people really who would read God's word not to desire evil as he did. Let's go to the next king, David. How did David start? Well, First Samuel sixteen seven. David wasn't quite as good looking as Saul, but he still was chosen by Saul. He still meets the Deuteronomy or he's still chosen by Yahweh. He meets the Deuteronomy seventeen start. God said, "Do not look on his appearance or height of stature." So he chooses the son of. Uh, so you have all the sons of Jesse. He chooses the, the small one, not the big one. Because I, I see the heart. David, just like Saul in 1 Samuel 16, 13, was had the Spirit of Yahweh come upon him. In Saul, it was 1010. 10, right? So they both start similarly. Well, both were chosen by God. Good start. Um, Saul's first act as king was an act of faith, right? Go get the um, Amorites and then give God the glory. <clears throat> David's first act after anointing was David and Goliath or the first recorded act what does this reveal about his fear of God his, David was marked his whole life he goes with my whole heart I seek you in your word God he read God's word he knew God's word and he lived it meaning he was more aware of the reality of God around him than he was of even a giant in front of him David feared the Lord. Right? He goes, this day to Goliath, Yahweh will deliver you into my hand, 1 Samuel 17, 46. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. It reminds you of Elisha in 2 Kings 6 with Gehazi. Gehazi. Right, the, um, the Syrians are surrounding and Gazi's like what, what are we going to do because Elisha was telling Israel's king basically what the Syrian king was dreaming about so that the Israel, Israelites knew sort of where the battle was going to be before it was going to happen and so the Syrians are like we've got to go kill Elisha Elisha's not scared because he, he fears God he's more aware of something than he is of the danger around him just like David His, just like we must be. Elisha says in 2 Kings 6.16, don't be afraid because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he prayed, he said, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened Gehazi's eyes and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Right, God is strengthening the hearts of the exiles to say, I'm God, there is no other. When I say obey me, actually obey me. When I say fear me, fear me. Because I do amazing things. I brought your people out of the land of Egypt. I established kings. I follow them. I keep my word. You're here in exile because I keep my word. And I'll keep my word if you obey. How much sweeter are our promises? If you would just have faith, your sins will be taken away. Sin won't be your master anymore. You will live for eternity with God. If we say we have faith in those promises. But we can commit high-handed sin. And be content with it. It's a dangerous place to be. That's the kind of knowledge of God that James calls like demon knowledge. You say there's one God, good, even the demons believe that. But you're saying in your heart there is no God. With the way that you live. If you say you have faith show it by the way you live every single battle with sin is a testing of your faith right the trial isn't the problem when you say oh every time i'm faced with this trial i sin that reveals something about your heart you should count it count it all joy because god's testing your faith and you actually get a chance to prove its reality when you don't fall, and God promises, right? He goes, these things are examples to you, so you don't desire sin and evil as they did. I'm not going to let you be tempted beyond your beyond your ability. But know, Christian, that you're just as prone in your own flesh as these men were to fall. So take heed, lest you fall. So seek God with all your heart in his word to make you more aware of the realities around you, the spiritual realities around you, than you are these physical realities. Or make yourself more aware of God's sovereign orchestration of your life. Make yourself more aware of his commands, his promises, his provision, than you are the trials around you. Right, Elisha, Looks out and there's chariots of fire. David looks at Saul at, at Goliath and he's like, You're nothing compared to God. You're just you're defying the armies of the living God. So even if I die, I don't care. I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna go out and, and defend my God. Because I fear him. You know what's interesting? Among Saul. David and Solomon, early on in their life, both Saul and Solomon had direct encounters or direct words from Yahweh of warning, of saying, obey and I'll bless, disobey and I'll curse. You know what David had? God's word in print. There's no recorded until 2 Samuel 7, When God comes and gives him the promise of of his eternal kingdom. There's no face-to-face or even direct prophet warning or admonition to the man. Because he had it. He knew when he says, you're going to be king over Israel. He's like, okay, I know Deuteronomy 17. I'm going to go there and see what kind of man I have to be. He woke up early. He's in the early watches, the late night. He pursued God in his word. He was a man characterized by fear of God. He said, the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19, reviving the soul. The fear of the Lord is clean. More to be desired is your word than fine gold. In them, your servant is warned. And that's a good thing. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults and keep me back from presumptuous sins. So they don't have dominion over me. then I'll be blameless. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh. This is David's warning. It was God's word. And overall, David responded, well. David had compromise. Right? He, uh, but overall, he had incredible responses when opportunities arose. David found Saul, First Samuel 24, at the cave in Gedi. Did he kill him? No, he said, Far be it from me. He goes, May the Lord judge between me and you, Saul, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand will not be raised. He was so aware of God, that he goes, I don't have to execute justice. I can wait on God's timing. I don't need to compromise. How different is that than Saul? How different is that than you and me when we're anxious or when we want to demand justice? We have a chance to exact vengeance against our enemy when scripture says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. So when your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat or drink. Overall, David's life was not marked by compromise. He had great opportunity to. What do you do in the face of someone cutting you off in traffic, somebody doing something unjust at work, your wife accusing you of something that you didn't do or maybe did do? Our attitude or response in the presence of our enemies or in unjust sufferings or opportunity for retaliation or self-justification reveals our trust in Yahweh. so much here their response to sin overall David's life was characterized by a heart shepherded to God and his word Mm -hmm. and though he had remarkable evidence of fearing Yahweh he was not without sin right far from it obviously of the adultery with Bathsheba do you know what the consequences immediately she was pregnant been David that we know and love, that should have shocked him out of his stupor. Been like, oh, I should repent right now, but he, he didn't. He actually acted a lot like Saul, compounding sin with sin. Right? Going and killing Uriah, or having Uriah killed. God gave him another chance. This is the kind of God that we serve. Every time in scripture, these, this is all written down as, in, as a warning to us. It's written down for our instruction. This is on your homework. Won't you say, what does every text you read reveal about God? What does it reveal about God and man in contact with each other? And how must this affect us? Praise God that he is the kind of God who loves to give second chances. He... The pregnancy should have been warning enough for David. He shouldn't have even gotten another warning. He should have been removed immediately. But Nathan says, your sin has been covered. But he says, you're that man. And what's David's response? He goes, I've sinned against Yahweh. That sounds a lot like Saul. Saul's words. But do you know what David didn't do here? He didn't try to grasp to undo the consequences actually the next passage he he prayed and fasted that his child wouldn't die but he was content he didn't grasp after it and Psalm 51 records his confession in pursuit of repentance he goes against you and you only O Lord the one who I fear the one who I'm more aware of than anything else have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight and you're right to count it against me i'll blot it out let me still sing your praises let me let me make your name known still but he wasn't grasping out he wasn't trying to avoid consequences of sin Do you remember scott's signs of biblical repentance there's immediate decrease in the evidence of the sin. Rather, in Saul, there was an immediate increase or a consistent increase over his life of evidence of sin as reflected by heart compromise, heart compromise, heart compromise. <coughs> David, there was a fear, a confession of sin and a repentance that had him walk away, not avoid the consequences. Now we're going to do Solomon real fast and David's life ended well. He's characterized as a man after God's own heart. Solomon. He starts right it's it's a famous start. 1 Kings 3:11 how does he start? Right? He's he's David actually warns him. He says, "Don't disobey." But he starts what's the first thing we mostly remember him for doing? He prays for wisdom. I want to point out something to you. Go to 1 Kings 3. That's not the first thing that he does. Right? First, the the prayer for wisdom, right? And then God blessed him and made him the most wise man ever. The first thing that he does is verse 3, or verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh king of Egypt he took Pharaoh's daughter brought her into the city and the people were sacrificing at the high places Solomon he apparently was doing really well but he made compromises on wives he had lots of wives do you remember what Deuteronomy 17 said don't acquire many wives lest they turn your heart away Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He said, uh, don't return to Egypt. His first foreign wife is from Egypt. He compromised in worship. Numbers thirty-three fifty-two 52 says, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy, demolish their high places. Solomon's like, well, the temple's not done yet. Where else am I going to worship Yahweh at the high places. Two compromises that maybe were so small that a lot of commentators miss it. Like chapter three is like, this is a great chapter about how great Solomon is. But it starts out with two hints of the trajectory of his life. That and Solomon knew the importance of fear of the Lord and the importance of, the, of God's word, right? He learned it from his father. He wrote it in God's word. He was content. To let compromise sit because the consequences weren't immediately evident. Right? To the contrary, he was blessed more than anybody. Yahweh himself commended him because you asked for wisdom and not these other things. I'm going to give you long life and riches. So he's like, sweet. There's no consequence for, right? If you would have read God's word and been like, well, I can handle the wives. This must be for everybody else. Right? I can handle the wives because look how well I'm doing. I can handle the wealth because look how well I'm doing. Go to first Kings ten and we're gonna be, be done. I'm sorry for going a little over. First Kings ten fourteen. Look at all these compromises that apparently look like blessings. And you watch his heart becoming master of money. Torn away by his wives. 1 Kings 10 14. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents. That's 25 tons. In verse 21, none of his drinking vessels were silver because silver wasn't considered anything. You remember what Deuteronomy 17 17 said? The king isn't to acquire excessive silver and gold for himself. 1 Kings 10 26. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Look at verse 28. Solomon's import of horses was from where? Egypt. Deuteronomy 17:16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. First Kings 10.18 talks about his throne, how awesome it was. Deuteronomy 17 said, don't raise yourself up above your brothers. Require much riches for yourself. He probably justified himself all along saying, this is from Yahweh. This is the blessing that Yahweh spoke of in chapter 3. And instead it was compromise after compromise after compromise Where the man who knew, who wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom stopped fearing the Lord. Right? The cares of this world crept in. He thought, I can handle it because I'm doing so well. He thought, I can handle it in this part of my life. I can handle it in this part of my life. He didn't deal with sin immediately. Brothers, this was written down. Solomon disobeyed as an example to us and it was written down for our instructions that you wouldn't desire evil as they did at the end of his life verse 4 of chapter 11 his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true then God says I'm going to raise up Jeroboam and do you know what Solomon's response when he found out that Jeroboam was going to be king? He tried to kill him. The son of the king after God's own heart, who wouldn't who wouldn't kill Saul because he feared the Lord. His decisions, his lack of heart shepherding through little compromises that initially didn't have any any effect, led him to a place he never would have imagined. where he became just like Saul the dynasty he was supposed to replace within a generation the kingdom was ripped in half a few hundred years later they were in exile and God recorded all this so that the people wouldn't desire evil like they did so that the people would fear God so that they would not be lifted up so they would, would recognize the same sin that's present in these men is present in them so guys there's a lot of implications from here I want you to consider each of these consider how each sin affected the heart home ministry of the king fear the heart hardening effects of sin recognize the need to fear Yahweh don't assume you're safe because you're doing well you must repent today Don't give a half-hearted effort at confession without full repentance because you see the trajectory it goes on. Saul, Solomon, they could never imagine at the beginning where they ended. But by the time they were at the end, it totally made sense to them. The beginning they were most aware of God. By the end of their life, their heart had been turned. Brothers, you're here right now on a good trajectory. Look for sin. Look for compromises in your life right now. A known sin that you're dabbling with, or maybe something that you've even hesitated to call sin up to this point because it's not really sin. It's just, I mean, I'm doing it for God. I'm sure God will understand. Little compromises that affect your heart, set you on a trajectory. <clears throat> Little things like, I'm too busy to get in God's Word. Little things like, well, at least it's not that kind of pornography. Or at least it's not every day. Can't confess that. Flee the first step towards sin, even if the sin seems justifiable. And never, never justify, never try to seek to undo the consequences of sin with more sin. Be more aware of God. Seek today to be more aware of God than your physical surroundings. And realize every time you sin that you're saying in your heart, there is no God. Will you guys pray with me? God, I pray that today would be an example to us of the way that we can take the Old Testament, these narratives and and use it to, things that were written down for our instruction, examples that took place for us that we wouldn't desire evil. God, I pray that these stories would stick out in our head. Not as things that happened to other men a long time ago. But as signposts of who you are. Your love that you love to bless and you will bless. And God, that when you, when you promise consequences for sin, they're real. God, I thank you for these new hearts they actually can obey from the heart. Oh, But God, do not let us play lightly with sin or be content to compromise. Pray that we would stand in fear today. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.